0: You are listening to a sermon from Village Baptist Church in Petaluma. For more sermons like this one, please visit our website at villagebaptisthome.org. Our mission is to win people to Christ and develop them into active disciples. We pray this sermon is a blessing to you. Now let's hear today's message. So, we have some people to dunk today. Yeah, and uh, my my wife pointed out to me um, the other day that this will be the first time we've done uh, baptism in our church, in our very church for at least 23 years, in our own building. We've done baptisms. We did it in my uh Grandfather slash Uncle's Church, um, but this will be the first time we're doing baptisms in our own building. So it's a pretty historic day. We're excited for it. So that's why we did two songs. I'm going to preach real quick. I'm going to try and make a crook, and then we're going to do some baptisms. So if you have a Bible, meet me in Genesis chapter 20. Yes. Genesis chapter 20, I began a series called Abraham, the Faith-Filled faithful journey. And if you're new here today, welcome. Uh, you're coming in the middle of the movie, basically. This is the eighth message uh, in this series, but you can go back and listen, but I think you'll be able to follow along with us today. Um, and the title of today's message is Why you Always Lying? <laughs> Part two. Why you Always Lying? Part two. So Genesis chapter 20 is where we're going to be today. If I were to give you a pill, and that pill would take away all of your sinful habits, or all of the habits that you have that you really don't want. All you had to do was take the pill, and it'd be completely gone. Would you take it? I think most of us would take it. Of course you would. But the issue is... Not just would you take it, but what would be the thing that you would want to get rid of? Most of us, all of us, I think here in this room, have things in our lives that we wish they didn't plague us the way that they did. Maybe it's a lust issue or it's anger or you have a problem with pride. And if you're like me, you know there are certain sins that just always tend to trip you up. No matter what you try and do, you're always falling into the same sin over and over And over again. And I wonder, why is that? Why is it? What is the pull that sin has to us? What is it that makes us want to sin? And I think it's because sin makes a promise. Sin makes the promise that it will either protect you from pain or provide pleasure. It will protect you from pain or provide pleasure. So you really want to indulge in it because you don't want pain or you want pleasure. And why is it so difficult? Because I think one of the things about sin is that sin doesn't come dragging the chains that will enslave us. When it comes to us, it just says, hey, this is gonna be a lot of fun. Nothing bad's gonna happen. It leaves the chains in the car, it doesn't tell you all the bondage and all the issues that you're gonna have. And we like to say, oh, well, I, I know what sin is is going to lead to. Actually, you don't because you haven't actually read the terms and conditions. Nobody reads the terms and conditions. Even though you say you read the terms and conditions, you haven't read the terms and conditions. The other reason why I think sin is so alluring to us is because um, the reward for it is immediate. The difference between sinning and obeying God is that when it comes to sin, you have that immediate reward that comes. So think about it. If you have a pastry from your favorite bakery, and I gave that pastry to you and you ate it, and I told you after eating it, it wouldn't taste like anything for six days. And then on the sixth day, all of a sudden, all that sweetness would come to your mouth. Six days after you ate it. How many of us would still be tempted to eat that cookie, that cake? No, I don't want to eat cardboard. I'd rather just eat an apple. Why? Because sin, the, the thing that makes it alluring is it has that immediate payoff. Where when it comes time to obey God, it's the long haul. It's, there's not, you don't see the benefit until down the line. And so because of that, we often find ourselves falling into sin. And I don't know if you're like me. But I often feel like, man, if I was really all God wanted me to be, he'd probably use me more. He'd probably bless me more. If God can't use me because of the things that I'm dealing with, the things that I'm going through. But here's the big idea of this message today. It's going to be this. Your sinful habits cannot hijack the plans and purposes of God. Your sinful habits, they cannot hijack the plans and purposes So that's what we're going to see this morning. So you should already be there. Genesis chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put it on the screen for you. Genesis chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. So here we are again um, with Abraham, and it says that he moved on from there. Now, where we were a couple months ago, because it's been a couple months since we're here, back in chapter 18, he's living by what's called the Trees of Mamre, And we skip chapter 19. And chapter 19 is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. These two wicked cities that God nukes. They're gone. Nothing left but a few cockroaches. That's it. And we skip that because Abraham's not really part of that story. So we skip into chapter 20 and it says he moved on from there. But the reason why did he move from where he was? We really don't know. One reason could be because he had herds. And so when the Sheep and the goats, and when they eat up all the grass, they gotta move to the next place. Or it could be that he saw what happened in Sologomor and said, I gotta get out of the area. We don't know. But he's moving on, and all these cities and places don't mean much to us because we're not from the area. But Gerar is the place where the Philistines live. And if you know anything about the Philistines later on in Israel's history, they become a real problem for Israel. But he moves on and he gets to this area and it, it sounds like, some of you are probably saying, you already preached this message. You already preached about him going somewhere, being afraid that they will kill him because of his beautiful wife. And he said, it's not my wife, it's really my sister. So you're preaching the same message again. No, I'm not. This is a totally different scenario. In fact, it's 25 years later, and he's still doing the same thing. Again, this is years ago. He's in, he goes to Egypt because of a famine. And when he gets there, he says, bae, you are so fine. And if they know (laughs) that you're my wife, they will kill me. And so just say, you're my sister, and then everything will go well with me. And then they take uh, Sarah, and then when they find out that it's his wife, because plagues and all that stuff's happening, they kick him out of the region, say, please leave, stay out. Same thing here. He gets to Gorah, and he says, hey, tell him, tell him you're my sister. And so here we find Abraham, again, he is a liar. Abraham is one of the heroes of our faith. He is a liar. Now, I always say this. Let's not be so harsh on the biblical characters. Because they are people just like you and me. And you be lying too. <laughs> I don't want you to look with judgment on Abraham because you do it. We all are tempted to do it. Just this past holiday season, I go into a store to buy some gifts, and my basket is full. I go to the front, and there's a guy standing there, and he goes, uh, do you have a membership here at the store? I said, no, I don't, but my wife does. And he said, oh, well, if you checked her email, then you might have uh, coupons that will give you like 30 40 50% off. I said, whoo. So I called wife. and said, hey, do you have any emails from this place? And she looked. and said, no, I can't find it. I said, no, you need to look again. <laughs> and so she looked again. And said, I don't see anything. I almost said, send me your information so I can log into it. She still said, there's nothing in there. I said, OK. And so the guy stopped me. and said, OK, don't, don't worry about it. I got you. Then he said, look. He said, I can't really do anything because I'm logged into the, the system. But if I log my guy out, then you can use my stuff. Just, just, just telling you my cousin. I'll tell him you're my cousin. And I said, uh. And he called his boy over before I could even an answer. And his boy came over and said, yeah, man, this is my cousin. And, you know, just hook me up. And, and he, he, he logged him out. And he gave me the discount. And I was like, and he said, tell A.T. I said, what's up? <laughs> and I just said, <laughs> And the whole time I'm thinking, hey, please, this guy don't ask me. <laughs> because I'm going to be forced to either tell the truth or not get the discount. Remember, remember what he said. Sin promises to either protect you from pain, full price, or give you pleasure, not pay full price. I walked out of that store saying, I am like Abraham. (laughs) I am like Abraham. And you know, you be lying too, we lie about stuff. All the time, you lie about your age, you lie about your weight. How about you weigh? You take on 15 pounds. You lie about your accomplishments. You said you you scored three touchdowns in high school, just been going up and up and up. There's no footage, so we can't verify. When somebody asks you, how far are you? And you say, I'm on my way. You know what that means? They're at home. So, so don't look, don't look down on, on Abraham. Don't look down on him because, because he's just like all of us. And, and, you know, throughout my life, I've especially to my family, I just be lying to them all the time. For no reason. We were going somewhere. My mom, my dad, my sister were all in the car waiting for me. We were supposed to go somewhere. And they said, hey, where are you? And I was just leaving home. And I said, um, yeah, I'm around the corner. So I'm starting to drive there, and then Shantae takes me, you ain't, you lying, you ain't around the corner. <laughs> I didn't say, I didn't say what corner. <laughs> I didn't say what corner. But why did I, why do you lie? Why do we lie? Because we want, we, we want to be protected from judgment, from shame, and we want all the praise and accolades. Yeah, I read my Bible all the time. Yes, I'm a model parent, and yes, I do everything, right. everything right. It's not true. It's not true. And so don't, don't, don't get on Abraham. Now, verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream. Now, by the way, Abimelech is just a title. It's not his name. So it's like Pharaoh or president, prime minister. Because he shows up later, or this name shows up later on in Scripture. So verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead. I like other translations that said, You're a dead man. Because of the woman you have taken, she is a married woman. Now, Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. So, God comes and he confronts Abimelech. Now, four things I want us to see here in in these verses here. Number one, God takes marriage seriously. God takes marriage seriously. Did you notice he said, you are a dead man. Why are you a dead man? Because you've taken someone who is not your wife. God takes marriage very, very seriously. And why does God take marriage seriously? There's probably a lot of reasons, but I think the number one reason he takes marriage seriously is because marriage is a picture of the relationship between God and his people. In fact, all throughout scripture, you see this language used. This is Isaiah 54. It says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your, rede- your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. You can write down Ephesians 2, verses 22 to 32. But in there, Paul says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. He keeps making this comparison. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ." So that I might present you as a pure version to him. So the idea here, when he talks about marriage, it's not sexual union. The idea of marriage here points to faithfulness, Mm -hmm. fidelity, loyalty. And God is saying, in the way that I'm faithful and loyal to you, you need to be faithful and loyal to me. And that's the way a marriage should be. And so when we're talking about marriage, we need to... I see two issues, especially in the church, in the way that we deal with marriage. Two ditches that we can fall in. The one is to minimize or criticize marriage. I ain't getting married. Married ain't for me. (laughs) Now, the reason people say that is because either they had a bad marriage or they grew up in a home that was a tough marriage. And so that can be difficult. Right? And you got to work through that. And, and that's some real stuff. But <laughs> that does not give you the authority to talk negatively about marriage. Because marriage is good. Marriage is awesome. Marriage is God's idea. Now the second dish that we can fall into is to making, mar- making marriage the end all be all. Making marriage into the thing that if you are single, then you are a second-class citizen. You're a second-class Christian if you don't get married. Jesus wasn't married. Paul wasn't married. Just because you're not married, just because you're single, doesn't mean that God can't use you or that you're less than. And we got to stop making people feel bad in the church about that. You When you going to get married? You're getting older. And you say, well, there's nobody out here. There's plenty of people. Look at him. <laughs> yeah, you, come here. Don't do that to people, by the way. That's horrible to do to people. What does is, what is, what is the book of Hebrews say? Let marriage be held in honor by all. And we're in an age, we're in a day, where the culture is, is not taking marriage seriously. Anything is marriage now. And so we need to see that God takes marriage very, very, very seriously. Number two, ignorance of sin does not remove your guilt. Amen. Ignorance of sin does not remove your guilt. Look again at verse 6. He says, then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. Because he's like, if you go back up to verse 4, he says, uh, Lord, will you destroy innocent nation? Did she not say to me, she is my, or, uh, she is my sister? And did he... Did she also say, he is my brother? I've done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. She's like, no, no, no. They told me that they were brother and sister. I haven't done anything wrong. But God says, I kept you from sinning against me. Just because you didn't know doesn't mean you're still not guilty. And this is important. Because we tend to think, well, if I don't know, then I can't be held responsible. Now, it's true that sometimes consequences are lessened or lighter because you didn't know. But you are still guilty. There is no getting away from the fact that you are still guilty. If you're allergic to almonds and you eat a cake with almonds in it, does the fact that you didn't know there were almonds in it mean you're not going to still be affected? No. In the same way, just because you don't know that you're sinning doesn't mean that you are not sinning. You are. And we do this with our kids all the time, don't we? Kids... There are things that they do, and they'll say, well, there's no rule against that. Yeah, I didn't make a rule, don't put your shoe in the toilet. Yes, I didn't make that rule. <laughs> but you still did something that's wrong. Now, in the future, now that I've told you, if you do it again, now the, the consequences will be even more severe. <clears throat> he holds Abimelech responsible. If you're going 80 and a 50, and the police officer pulls you over and says, do you know how fast you were going? So yeah, I know how fast I was going. He said, I was going 80. He said, in a 50? And he says, well, then you're not guilty. (laughs) Of course not. Just because you don't know doesn't mean that you are not guilty. This is why I think we need to ask God for forgiveness for the things that we don't even know that we've done. How many times have you come to prayer and just say, Lord, I did this, I did this, I did this. Not even thinking about the things that you did that you don't even know you did. Because you're still guilty for those things. And we see it here. God expects him to do the right thing and give her back. Number three. All sin is ultimately against God. It's not COVID, I promise. Uh, Verse six. Then God said in a, to him in a dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, so I have kept you from sinning against me. Wait a minute. I thought you sinned against Abraham and Sarah. All sin is ultimately against God. You see this throughout the Bible. Do You remember David, King David, he's supposed to be out to war, but he's on the roof and he sees a woman named Bathsheba taking a bath. He likes what, she, what he sees. Calls her over. They sleep together. She goes back home. A little while later, she sends him a DM on Instagram with just a picture of a pregnancy test. <laughs> and in just a few words, it's yours. <laughs> he freaks out and then kills her husband. <clears throat> kills him. And then marries her and thinks, whew. That was a close one. (laughs) Then God sent a a prophet to him to confront him. And after confronting him, David repents. You remember what he said in Psalm 51 when he's writing about this? He says in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. You remember when Jesus told the parable of the... A prodigal son and when the prodigal son came to his senses and he started to say this is what I'm going to do and he said when I, when I go back to my dad this is what I'm going to say. He said I will go back to my father and say to him father I have sinned against heaven. When you say heaven in the scripture it's another way of saying God. I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he says first I've sinned against God before I've sinned against you. In the book of Genesis Joseph is taken into Potiphar's house, and his wife really takes a liking to him and tries to pull him into bad situations, try to pull him into bed. And she keeps trying to do it. And one time he said this to her. He said, uh, I will, no, where is it? No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? So all throughout the scripture, you see all sin is ultimately against God. So think of it. For example, if you steal my car, yes, you have violated me. Yes, you have wronged me, but it's not me who holds you accountable. Because ultimately, what who you are or what you're violating is the law that is even above me. It's the law that you violated. So regardless of my worthiness or regardless of my innocence, regardless of who I am, you if you do it to me or you do it to my neighbor or you do it to the president, it's still wrong. Not because of the person, but because of the law that's above them. And so ultimately, all crimes are committed against the established law. That's why we tell people, don't take the law into your own hands. There are established authorities. That's what Paul says in Romans. That the, that the government doesn't bear the sword for nothing. And so when we're thinking about Wronging someone, ultimately, we're wronging the law. So, we're talking about all sin is against God. God is the moral lawgiver. All, mor- all, all morality comes out of his character. That's how we know what morality is. It is the things that are contrary to his character are the things that we would say are immoral. That's where we get morals from, his character. And so, to do any kind of sin is to sin against God, firstly. So we see this again in the text. He says, I've kept you from sinning against me. And then number four, God intervenes in the world to bring about his good purposes. God intervenes in the world to bring about his good purposes. Did you notice? He said, I kept you from sinning against me. I kept you. God literally, in space and time, kept Abimelech from sinning against him. A few months ago, after prayer, We are praying through the Psalms of Lament, which are songs about being sad and depressed about the way things are in the world. And someone came up to me after and they said, you know, we get up and we pray for these things. And I'm just having difficulty because, you know, the Bible says that things as we go are going to get worse and worse and worse. And we're praying for things to get better, but the Bible says they're going to get worse. So, like, what are we doing? How do we how do we maintain hope in these kinds of moments when we're feeling like, man, what, what's the point of doing all this? And so we talked about that, and I just I was I've been thinking about that, and one of the things that came to me, and even in seeing here in, in this text, is that just because we aren't aware of all God is doing, doesn't mean He isn't doing anything. In fact, our emotions. And our perspectives are often affected by what we have knowledge of. So we know, generally speaking, that there's evil in the world, that there is abuse. But isn't it different when somebody gives you a name and an address and they give you details? And the thing about us is that we are not God. We don't know everything. We're not aware of everything that's happening in the world, and the things that we are aware of, when we become aware of them, then they weigh on our souls and our hearts, and we say, oh, all is lost, but if you didn't know it, it probably wouldn't feel that bad. Did you know Staples here in our community, right here in Petaluma, was robbed? Someone came in and took one of the iPads out of the display and walked out with it, got on a motorcycle and drove away? Did you know that? You know how I know? Because I was there. I'm standing in line, and somebody walks in. He has a motorcycle helmet on. He walked in a few times, didn't think nothing of it. He walks in, and I turn around, and all we hear, and he's walking out. He's walking all. He looked like he just learned to walk yesterday. (laughs) Based on the way was walking, but he was walking out with the iPad, got his motorcycle, and drove off. And I said, "Uh, "Did he just steal that iPad?" She said, "Yeah, I think he did." I was like, "What? What is wrong with people today?" But you didn't know that. But now that you know, you're probably like, man, people in this world. (laughs) And if you knew all the things that have been stolen, all the evil that's going on in every household, on every block, it would be overwhelming. We don't have the capacity to know all that God is doing. And so what people say oftentimes is, well, God, why didn't God stop this? And why didn't God stop that? And why didn't he allow this? And why did he allow that? And the answer is, I don't know why God allowed this. But how many mass shootings did he stop? How many times did he stop a husband from beating her wife, his wife? How many times did he save you from a car accident? And the answer is you don't know. But God doesn't have to share those things with you because he's God and he's always doing things. And so when we pray, we should not be thinking, well, it's not working. God is working. Let me give you an example because you didn't know this. A pastor uh, wrote this on his Facebook. He's uh, pretty well known um, to a few people and it was just this amazing story. He said this. Been a rough month since putting all, uh, putting all these bills in. My wife was in the hospital. My son has been sick. Then my wife got sick after him. My daughter was just in the, in the hospital. Then last night at about 3 a.m., the Lord woke me up. Come figure out why. No problems. No smell. For a providential reason that mystifies me, I went into the living room and saw our air purifiers going berserk with their red lights on, meaning something is wrong. Then I saw smoke. The detectors, very oddly because they are very sensitive, weren't going off. Then I saw flames coming out of the laundry room. The fire department thinks a battery randomly exploded in the cabinet and set fire to everything. Praise God for his providential protection of my family. This could have been the end. The firefighters said that about another minute and it could have ignited the other packs of batteries and chemicals. After I read that, I went immediately and moved all the batteries out of the chemical area. Now, you didn't know that. But that's an example of God working. And so when we're praying, we shouldn't be thinking, well, God's not working all because I don't see it. Or because it seems like evil is just taking over. Matthew Henry, he said this. There's a great deal of sin devised and designed that is never executed. As bad as... As things are in the world, they are not so bad as the devil and wicked men would have them. It is God that restrains men from doing the ill they would do. It is not from him that there is sin, but it is from him that there is not more sin, either by his influence upon men's minds, checking their inclination to sin, or by his providence taking away the opportunity to sin. So the next time we pray... For missionaries in some far off place, let's have faith. God can be working even if we don't know what he's doing. When we pray for protection to believe God is doing it because he's doing things in ways that we we don't know. Especially when when we went through the book of Esther. Remember the whole theme of the book of Esther was the providence and sovereignty of God. In that book, God doesn't speak. In that book, there's no prophets. There's no word. But you see God's fingerprints throughout the entire story. There's no way that that coincidence happened and this coincidence happened because God's working history to bring it about to his intended end. So Abimelech now, he has a choice. What is he going to do? He can keep the wife and die, or he can respond to what God has said. Look at verse 8. I love the first word. Early. Early. He woke. guys, wake up, wake up, staff meeting, up, up, up. Like Martin Luther King, I had a dream. Wake up, wake up. <laughs> Staff meeting, he gathers them in, and what did he say? The next morning, he summoned all his officials, and he told them what had happened. When he told them that what had happened, they were very much afraid. They said, so this God came to you, and he said, that, yeah, you should call Abraham. And Abimelech called in Abraham and said, what have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You've done things to me that should never be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what was your reason for doing this? You know it's bad when an unbelieving king is calling you to act like a Christian. And in God's grace, he will often expose the very things we're trying to conceal. And what happens when God brings our sin into the light and exposes us? We start making excuses and justifying, which is what Abraham did. Look what he said. Abraham replied, verse 11, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. So we assume this place doesn't have any fear of God, doesn't know God. He was wrong. They had a fear of God. They they, they didn't know the true God, but they had a fear of some kind of God, and they had a respect for marriage. In that time, people believed that adultery was wrong. And so it wasn't this thing where he assumed they would not have any fear of God, but he was wrong. And then verse 12, besides, she really is my sister. Now here comes in this weird little point, right? The daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. So they're siblings. Now if that weirds you out, back in that time, there was no law against it. Later on in the law, God did make a rule against it to say you you cannot do that. But here in this time, no issue. Now, that wasn't the issue, because the issue is we asked you, is that your wife? You said, it's my sister. People always trying to be technical when they're trying to conceal things. My wife said, you take out the garbage? Yes. She goes downstairs, the garbage is still in here. Well, you didn't ask me when I took out the garbage. I took the garbage out last week. You did not ask me if I took the garbage out this week. Obviously, you know what I was asking you. <coughs> You just don't want, you're trying to conceal it. Right. Right. And then verse 13, he said, and when God <clears throat> had me wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is crazy. This is how you can show your love to me everywhere we go. Say of me, he is my brother. So this has been a plan from the beginning. They just go everywhere lying. He says, so we, this is not like spur of the moment. We're not just came up with this. We plan to do this. Then Abimelech, verse 14, brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, my land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah he said, I'm giving your brother, he's petty, he said, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all Who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech. His wife and his female slaves. So that they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women. In Abimelech's household. From conceiving. Because of Abraham's wife Sarah. Two takeaways. And then we're going to get into baptism. Number one. Struggling with sin. Does not keep God from blessing you. Or using you, because God's grace is greater than our sin. Amen. Struggling with sin does not keep God from blessing you or using you, because God's grace is greater than our sin. Did you notice what <clears throat> God said to Abimelech about Abraham? He said to him, "You, or, Abraham, is a prophet. He's a prophet. He doesn't say he's a former prophet. He says he is a prophet." And then, secondly, you should notice that God answers Abraham's prayer. He prays for them to be healed, the whole household, and and they're healed. And then thirdly, he leaves with more than he had when he came. Abimelech just cashed after him a bunch of money, gave him slaves, gave him land. Remember when he left from Egypt, he said, get out, please do not come back. In Gerar, he said, wherever you want to live, it's cool. And so we see that just because Abraham was struggling with sin doesn't mean God couldn't bless him and God couldn't use him. Now, I want to double click on this word struggling because that's very important. If you hear this, you say, oh, so you mean to tell me that I could keep on sinning and God will bless me and keep me and use me and give me all, oh, I'm signing up for that. If that's what you're hearing, if that's what you're going to do, listen, repent, believe the gospel, because you're not saved. <laughs> and believe it or not, people think that way. They think that God, when you come to church, it's just time to wash off all that sin that you've been doing all week. I just need to be washed in the blood. <laughs> And I ain't going to do the same thing I was doing last week. No, no difference, no change. Paul in, in Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? The whole reason God is kind to you It's not so you'll keep sinning, but that you'll stop. That's why he blessed Abraham, because Abraham wants you to stop. And when you see the kindness and the goodness and the patience and the forbearance of God towards you, you say, how could I continue in doing the very things that hurt the heart of my God? Can you imagine me going out and being with other women if my wife said, you know, whatever whatever you want to do, I'll always forgive you. What would that say about the way I felt about her? What would that say about my relationship with her? That would not fly for many reasons. All of you would kill me. (laughs) Here lies, (laughs) shala, cheater. And then number two, last point. Abraham points to the real hero of the story, Jesus Christ. When you look back in chapter 12, what was the overall promise that God made to Abraham? He told him, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you a great nation. And then in verse 3, he told him, through you, all of the nations are going to be blessed. What was that? The nations were going to be blessed through Jesus Christ who comes and gives his life as a ransom. And all who would believe would come and be able to come into his family. That is what he's ultimately promising him. So all of Genesis, all of the Bible looks forward to Jesus. And Abraham is a prophet. You notice that he said he was a prophet. But Abraham points to the greater prophet, Jesus Christ. Jesus is a prophet. A prophet is one who would teach, who would predict, and who would work miracles. Jesus did all that. And when you look in the book of Hebrews, it says this about Jesus. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. So Jesus is A prophet. He's greater than all the prophets, and he's greater than Abraham because the prophet is the one who tells us what God says. He has the word from God. He is the word of God, and he's the greater prophet. He's not just the greater prophet, but you also notice that Abraham was a mediator. A mediator is a go-between. They stand between two parties. Abraham stands between Abimelech and God, prays for him, and God heals Abimelech and his whole household. But, But Abraham... Is not the ultimate mediator because it points forward to Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. So the only way you can be saved is to look to the greater prophet and to look to the greater mediator who has made sacrifice for your sin. That's what Abraham's story points to. The point of the story is not be like Abraham, especially not today. (laughs) But on no day do we say be like Abraham. We say our hope is in the prophet. Our hope is in the mediator who has come to rescue us from our sin. And that is what those who are being baptized today have done. They have trusted Jesus As their Lord, and as their Savior, as their mediator, as their prophet, as their Savior, as their Lord. And when we think today about this pool and what it represents, I just want you to know, especially if you're here and you're not a Christian, this baptism pool is just a picture of something that has already happened. It's something that has already happened to us. It's a dramatization of what has already happened in our hearts. Think of it like a wedding ring. If you have a wedding ring, it represents something, it represents the relationship you have with someone. Now, can you wear a wedding ring and not be married? Yes. Do you walk around and have a wedding ring and say, oh, I just, my, I see people wear wedding rings all the time who they, they really, they're not married, they're, wear, they're wearing it for some other reason. But imagine somebody is actually married. What does that ring represent? It represents that I belong to someone. I am someone's beloved. And that's what these candidates have done. They have said, I belong to Jesus. I have been buried with Christ. I am now raised to life. And he is mine and I am his. And someone who is a Christian who says that they are a Christian and does not walk into the waters of baptism is like somebody who is a husband who is saying, I want to be married to you, but I don't want to wear my ring. Or, I want to be in the army, but I don't want to wear the uniform. Baptism is commanded, and it's not, there's nothing magical that's happening when these candidates get into the water. What has happened to them has already happened. But it's them saying, it's them proclaiming, this is what has happened to me, and I'm not ashamed to tell the world. So that's what we're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate that they have done that, and they have given their lives to Christ. So let's celebrate with them. I'm going to hand it over to my dad in a moment. I just want to pray, and then we'll walk into our baptism service. Thank you for listening. If you would love to hear more sermons like this one or find out more about our church, please visit us at VillageBaptistHome.org. Until next time, take care and God bless.